0: Latitude Media, podcast at the frontier of climate technology. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst.
1: We meet with a lot of companies, and I hear from them, and they're like, oh yeah, we're gonna be delivering credits in a year. They haven't built anything. They haven't commissioned anything. They haven't put it together. It's not yet done. And, you know, I hate to be the party pooper all the time, but I'm like, you know, we need to have a flexible contract because that's probably not
0: gonna be the reality. This week, the practical realities of being one of the pioneering purchasers of carbon removal. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So, I think the carbon removal or CDR market is super interesting and pretty weird to be honest, it's like three, four years old. It's really not that old, right? The first procurements, besides some really small individual ones for some of the early early days of DAC, but the first procurements of this kind of new emergent market that is focused on durable carbon removal really only showed up in, call it 2020, 2019, 2020. So it's a, it's a new market. The other thing that I find interesting about it is that though there is a growing buyer pool, it's really still predominantly dominated by a small number of companies that are procuring, in part, not just for their own benefit, but trying to foster an ecosystem and support the development of the industry, right? So the the names here that everybody knows are Stripe, or now Frontier, which is the the program that Stripe created with a bunch of other corporates, Microsoft, and Shopify. And each of them are building these, these fairly broad portfolios of Procurements from technologies and companies that are pursuing different pathways to carbon removal. And they sign lots of additional procurements as time goes on, more companies show up. You know, we've got hundreds of carbon removal companies now where we had, I don't know, probably a dozen or less back before all of them started. And so it's this interesting dynamic in the market where there's like this explosion of possibilities, but also, Rapidly uh, changing procurement guidelines, and you know how the how the buyers, of which there's still a very small number, think about what is good, what is bad, what's a good fit for them. So, you know, it's interesting to talk about this market from a theoretical perspective and and the different pathways. But I also think it's interesting to just talk to one of those buyers and see how they are thinking about, practically speaking, both buying and receiving delivery of carbon removal tons as they are just starting to show up in the market. So who better to talk to than Stacey Kauk, who is the head of sustainability at Shopify and represents, as I said, one of what I think of as the sort of three big buyers of durable carbon removal, or at least three initial big buyers of carbon removal. Uh, so Stacy has all the sort of early battle scars of this industry and is in a unique perch to talk about what is working and what isn't, what's hot and what's not, and what we expect to see next. Here's Stacey. Stacey, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So we're talking about carbon dioxide removal and and the market for it, which you're a big part of. So actually starting with, when did you start, when did you make your first procurement at Shopify for CDR? And then how much have you pre-purchased or purchased so far?
1: So we made our first purchase... In 2020, I think we signed our first contract. It would have been in June of 2020. We made a batch announcement in September 2020, where we made, I believe, eight purchases. Um, So that's where we got started, and we had a a good range. We had a couple of DAC companies. We had some ocean companies, Ocean Alkalinity Enhancement, as well as Biomass Sinking. We had um, some Biochar in there, um, some Charm Industrial for some BECs. So we had a a good range in our our first portfolio. So we've been at it, I guess we're in year five now.
0: And how much have you purchased in total now in tons?
1: So we're just under 85,000 tons and that's durable carbon removal. So it doesn't include things with less than an estimated 100-year permanence.
0: Okay. And so you mentioned a bunch of the categories and I want to talk through some of those and talk about how you think about building a portfolio. But starting with one of the fundamental questions in CDR, which is that a lot of the purchases that have happened so far, including I think most of the ones that you've made, they're all forward market commitments. They're all purchases for future delivery of carbon removal. So now that you're three years in change into your procurement, can you talk a little bit about how much has been delivered versus what you've purchased and how you expect that to trend over the next few years?
1: Yeah. So a lot of it is forward purchases. Um and since, you know, we're entering year five, if we talk about what happened in 2023, um, other than charm industrial, a large portion of our portfolio credits were reforestation, soil carbon storage and biochar. Um, things have started to change in the back half of 2023, where we got our first ocean deliveries from Running Tide. And then our first DAC credit delivery from Climeworks, which is the first batch of credits we've received from them from the contract that we signed in 2020. So we're starting to see, um, some things change in terms of the look and feel of what's being delivered. Um, but it's, it's a slow start for sure.
0: Can you talk about volumes at all there? Like how much... Even or another way to put it, I don't know if you have this number offhand, but of that first batch, like what portion that batch that you procured in late 2020, how much of that has been delivered?
1: So I don't have the numbers offhand, but a lot of these contracts we did them as five-year deals with extensions, and so each 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 contract was around, it depended on the technology, but like say if we take um, a DAC contract, um, you know, we're talking a maximum of like 100 tons a year being delivered is what we're looking for. Um, So it's starting to trickle. In is what's happening, and then how we designed these contracts was to have um, follow-on purchases. Where as things got proven out, and we understood pricing and economics and all of that, then you know we would have rights to um, add on additional purchases from future deployments and things like that. So these are really credits that are coming in from pilot facilities,
0: and to some extent that makes sense, right? You know, you're doing first of a kind stuff, and so it, it takes time to build. And you're you're the whole point is that you're procuring this before it is built, so that it is able to get built, right? Uh, Allows the companies to raise the capital that they need to build the pilots and so on. Does that, so that is a roughly three-year sort of time between original purchase and first deliveries of, you know, in the hundreds of tons scale. Um, Have you seen that expectation moving in either direction since then? Like, are the new procurements that you're signing today, are you expecting roughly three years before they'll start to be delivered? Are you expecting it to be faster? Are you realizing things take longer and it's going to take more time? I just think it's an interesting dynamic in this market because everything is forward purchase commitments.
1: Yeah. No. And like, it's frothy, right? Like it's not straightforward. And, you know, some of our credit deliveries are on time maybe they're 6 months late, maybe they're 12 months late, they're not that far off. Um but we are seeing some that have massive delays because there's huge pivots happening by these companies where they like try their pilot and they're like, "Oh, this absolutely doesn't work." And there's a big redesign that has to happen and then you get those delays, right? Or what well, we also also are seeing are permitting delays, things that, you know, companies take for granted sometimes and, you know, that government permitting process can take a lot longer where you're going to put the carbon that you capture. You know, you need a class six well in the U.S. That's going to take some time too. So I think as a buyer, and like that's the unique perspective that I can bring, right? As a buyer, we meet with a lot of companies and I hear from them and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to be delivering credits in a year. They haven't built anything. They haven't commissioned anything. They haven't put it together. It's not yet done. And you know, I hate to be the party pooper all the time, but I'm like, you know, we need to have a flexible contract because that's probably not going to be the reality. And like, that's what we're seeing play out is, you know, it is about three years before you can get those deliveries because when we're making those those purchase decisions, often... We don't have full visibility and neither does the company. Like they're building the plane while they're flying it. They need to do MRV. They need to look at third-party verification. There's a lot that goes into shipping those first credits in addition to actually getting the technology itself to work. you've, You've got to actually do that whole carbon accounting and verification process as well, which for a lot of these companies, there's not even a methodology yet. So, you know, there's a lot that goes into as a buyer being able to accept that delivery. And that takes quite a bit of time. And I think there's a lot of companies out there who want to be ambitious. You know, you got to prove to investors, you got to get financing. So you have to have good timelines. But when it comes down to it, everything takes longer. That's the observation, I would
0: say. Right. Which is, you know, I think is true across lots of new technology categories and, and, but, you know, it's interesting in this space just because we're at the front end, there's all this new procurement now and the deliveries are just starting to happen. As you described for most of these, You, you mentioned the, in the original procurement that you made when it was a batch and there were a bunch of different solutions. Um, some of those names, I'm interested in what you've been seeing since then. So, you know, in the three and a half years that you've been sort of publicly in the market, um, what are the trends that you've noticed in terms of categories of CDR? Like what is hot and you're getting lots of folks banging down your door trying to sell you credits? Where are you seeing the market languish? You know, what's the, because there are so many different ways and more ways every day to do carbon removal. I'm curious what you think is hot and not, so to speak.
1: Yeah. And I guess it's everybody's personal definition of what's hot, right? And what you're into. Um, So, you know, those first Purchases, yeah, they were predictable. We knew what they were known quantities. We knew who they were we knew what they were doing. They'd been at it for a little bit of time, but there has been an emergence of new technologies. I think we're seeing a lot of activity in enhanced rock weathering space um, because that's very quick to deploy. I think, you know, when a lot of The purchases started happening in the early days in 2020, 2021. There was that $100 per ton price target at scale that was put out there. And, like, you know, whether or not that's achievable is one thing, but like that's something that you can use in order to have a baseline comparison point across different technologies and approaches. And I think what we're seeing is the market has taken that and kind of internalized it. And we're seeing an emergence of, New types of approaches in carbon removal that are really focused in on trying to do it at a low price. So that we're using wastes. Um, we're doing it with existing infrastructure. Um, examples of that are um, like Crew Carbon, which is doing carbon removal through wastewater treatment plant sludge and outfalls, and the you know the optimizing that process. We're seeing. Um, interesting companies like graphite come out of stealth where they're basically bailing hay and putting it underground, right? And then we've got other companies that are doing biomass burial, which which to me is like kind of like the the weird one that's coming out of like the initial market signals. It's like we want it to be cheap. We want it to um, be permanent. we want it to ha- be non-competing. And so like a lot of these um, performance criteria, because it was always performance criteria. It wasn't prescriptive of technology. It was like, here's what we like in terms of CDR. So we've got a lot of different approaches coming out that are hitting those performance criteria. And then I kind of stepped back and I'm like, do we really want to be doing that? Do we really want to be taking waste, bailing it up, coating it in plastic and burying it underground? Or do we really want to be... um like it just kind of goes on and on and on. There's all these like different ideas really around you waste biomass, which I think has its own bag of problems, and you've had an entire podcast about that, so I won't get into it. But for me, in terms of what's hot, what's not, I really like carbon removal that enhances natural systems because they use less energy, which makes them more cost effective, whether or not we're going to be able to optimize them to a point that makes the economics and the business case works, I, th- I think is yet to be seen. But but that's what's hot for me are things like that.
0: So that's like ocean alkalinity enhancement and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, ocean alkalinity enhancement. Um, ARCA, who's using mine tailings and treating those in a certain way to, use, to turn them into a carbon sink. Um, there's a company out there that has figured out a way to um, do the aggregate and the coating of roads so that those roads harden and calcify and become a carbon sink in and of themselves. Like there's all sorts of neat things that are passive in terms of um, the reactivity when we stack those up against, you know, what I was talking about in 2020 was DAC all the time. You know, it was always direct air capture and it was, i got to find the one that's going to do this with the least amount of energy inputs. And now everything that's sprung up I think is kind of a swing response to that, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think part of the challenge, the reason the DAC is to some people intuitively attractive is that it's an engineered system. It, in theory, if if you're not constrained by energy, which you are, but if you're not constrained by energy, you can put it anywhere. So it's sort of like theoretically infinitely scalable. And because it's an engineered system, you can imagine a cost curve. So start on the cost curve and then ride down the cost curve, and then eventually you hit some promised land. And so that sort of seems intuitively appealing about DAC. Of course, it runs into the constraint of uh, that cost curve may be illusory. It may or may not be there. Or if it's there, it may be harder than we think. Energy is a constraint, It's not not a constraint. It's very capital intensive, very energy intensive. So then you start thinking about these other things that you're describing, enhancing natural systems or the, you know, biomass burial stuff. And all those things relative to DAC are going to be lower energy intensity for sure. And generally speaking, lower cost on day one, right? If you're doing a first of a kind of any of those versus a first of a kind DAC, (laughs) right? It's always going to be more expensive to do DAC. Um, but the question with those, of course, is usually some combination of scalability. So, do you have enough mine tailings? Do you know have enough waste biomass? Whatever it might be, and the cost curve being less obvious. And so, there's this sort of interesting dynamic of like, if you're going to do one of them, you're probably going to do both. But if you're going to do one of them, you know, do you bet on the sort of like starts better but maybe trickier to scale, or starts worse? but in theory over the long-term scales really well question. I'm curious how you think about that from a procurement standpoint. Like, is your goal just to kind of like seed all the promising ideas with by with your buying power? Or are you sort of picking the pathways that you think are going to be best, either for Shopify specifically or just for everybody?
1: So it started out with uh, all of the things portfolio approach because – and I, and I actually would say we're still there because we don't know actually what's going to play out and what's going to work out. And the reason we have decided, like we've got 40 companies in our portfolio now across a multitude of pathways. And it's really about trying to give the best companies a chance to go out and build something and prove that it works, hopefully. And and if not, they've at least gathered and generated some data that shows us like this is not going to work, or this is the first iteration, and we're going to have to start again, but we learned a lot. And so right now, we're still in that searching for what is what are the things that are going to work, because All of these things have research behind them and academic studies and, you know, on paper looks like it should work. But in practicality, we have to actually go from zero to one and operate the project as it's been designed and have that learning experience. So we're still in the picking across all the verticals because we're not clear what's going to scale. And the reason we're doing that is because we want to... So there's there's two pieces. One is to learn and to help the field advance, um, but the second is because we want to have a diverse tech stack within each vertical. So we don't just have like one or two DAC companies. We have seven. We don't just have one or two like biomass based solutions. We're gonna have five or six, and the reason. Be- behind that is because we try to pick companies that are doing it differently and that are taking a different angle on solving the same problem using a very similar approach. However, they've got some kind of innovation that differentiates them from the rest of the field. And so we're picking that diverse stack because we're not sure which ones are going to prevail because they haven't actually operated at a significant enough scale from an engineering perspective for us to really know how much they're going to cost. And, And I think that that is part of the the factor in having that diverse tech stack within the verticals. And the, the rationale from like a corporate buyer perspective is we try to do a lot of these in a way that gives us access to future projects so that if it works out, yes, we were a first buyer, first off taker, and, you know, we... Have some risk because sometimes we'll actually make prepayments as well, so that there's non dilutive capital coming in at an early stage that does a lot of catalytic things from a financing perspective for these startups. And so, because we've taken on that risk, we do want to share in the upside. And the upside for us is access to those hopefully high quality carbon removal credits down the road from future projects that are operating at a better cost per ton. And so, that's what we're hoping for. And that's like a 10 year line of sight for us. It's not something that we're looking to cash in on today. And from a buyer perspective, it's important for us to have a variety on that list because there's a lot of... um unknowns and developments happening in the voluntary carbon market. There's a lot of developments happening in the regulatory landscape. We're a publicly traded company. We're going to be doing, you know, climate-related disclosures and we're going to have all sorts of things coming at us when we get to 2030, 2035. And so having that diverse approach gives us the flexibility we, like, I think we're going to need as a corporate, climate-aware, like regulated company likely in the long term. <laughs>
0: So, is the way that you think about portfolio building, like if you look at your portfolio periodically, as I suspect you do, um, do you look at it and say, okay, we're like, now we're maybe a little bit overweight on DAC or we're overweight on biomass burial. And so now we're going to try to rebalance. Is it that type of a portfolio balancing thing? Or, you know, how how do you think about like what is the right type of portfolio to construct?
1: So, we look at it. From that perspective of um, tech diversification, but we also try to have a range of maturity of the technology and of the company looking to implement the solution. So we look at two things. We look. We want to be balanced from a tech perspective, but we also want to be balanced in terms of like low TRL number, like low TRL levels versus some solution that's ready to be fully commercialized, like a Climeworks, for example. And so we we need to have some of those like safer bets, because we do need those credits coming in because we retire them against our footprint, so that we can maintain that carbon neutral commitment. So we turn the dials. And how we do that is we monitor our existing portfolio companies, very similar to how like a VC fund would monitor the performance of their companies. We look at things like runway and cash burn and the financial viability of the companies. We look at the progress they're making from a technology development standpoint. Are other players in the market starting to support them? And we, so we do a health check. And we do that health check every six months. And on an annual basis, we'll identify companies that, you know, we have concerns about, And then we look at, okay, well, they're in this vertical, they're doing this technology, we probably want to get a deal with a startup who's coming into that space so that we have a backup plan. If we have concerns about the performance of our existing companies, um, that's just starting to happen now. Because like, as you said, at the beginning of this, we're three years in, we're just starting to have enough dots on that plot to see if it's going in the right direction or not for these companies. So we're getting to that point where I think you're going to see uh, more portfolio adjustment from us as, as we go forward, as companies, you know, prove and scale or, you know, prove that they're not going to scale.
0: What about pricing? Obviously, it, this market is a, a funny one with regard to pricing. In theory, right, you're buying a commodity. You're buying a dollar of ton removed. And so in theory, you would have commodity pricing. But of course, it's not that way. The market is like all over the place. I mean, you're just doing durable 100 year plus. So, you know, you're not probably buying anything that costs $30 a ton, but you could be buying something that costs 100 bucks or 200 bucks a ton. You could also be buying something that costs thousands of dollars a ton. Um, So one, how do you think about like, what is your willingness to pay for a given solution? what is the what is what determines viable pricing to you? And two, um, you know, do you in your portfolio construction, is that a factor? are you saying okay let's let's make buckets of credits based on their pricing and make sure that we're sort of exposed to all those different types so
1: there's a lot in there. So the first place to start when it comes to pricing, you know, you're talking about a commodity. That's not how I think about it at all because, um, they're not fungible. Like they're not comparable. They're not the same. Everything is different.
0: And but do you agree that at some point they should be like, I I get that they're not today, but like down the line, 10 years, 20 years from now, you know, there will be differences. And I guess you could pay more for 10,000 years of durability versus a thousand years of durability, but, but but basically, shouldn't this ultimately be a commodity market?
1: A hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And I think I think it has to be. In order to function properly, we need to end up in a place where a ton is a ton is a ton. And there's there's two reasons for that. One, it provides that level playing field on the side of the suppliers, but it also provides a level requirement across companies or whoever it could be governments at that point who are retiring these credits you know they have to be equivalent tradable interchangeable resellable and functioning otherwise we haven't done our job This is going to take 20 30 years but we haven't done our job well today To because that's where we need this to be in order for it to work properly and you know a lot of folks make choices today to buy credits that, oh, they like the sound of that technology or that project, or, oh, that's interesting. It's, you know, based on an agricultural process and my company's in the egg business. That's what I want to buy. Like, it, it just makes it difficult for cash flow and credit sales and for companies to perform. So it would be very good if we ended up in that space in the long run where it's irrelevant and here's the market price. Um, but to go back to price... Um what I think there's something to be clear on like what is the act what is the cost to actually capture and store that ton like what does it actually cost because that's different from price because what we see as like what I see as a buyer is we've got kind of two kinds of companies. One, they're going to charge the cost. Their price is equal to the cost. And then there are other companies that their price is less than the cost and they're taking a loss because they want to come out and they Are having, they have a different business strategy where they want to have a lower price than somebody else doing something similar, or they want to have a signal that this kind of technology is going to cost less. And maybe it will in the long run, but it's not today, but that's what they want to be as their market signal. So I think we're getting a lot of misinformation in terms of like pricing that's out, like based on what you've actually paid. Um, So as a buyer, we look at the cost to do a ton. And then we can talk about price because it's important for us to understand the OPEX and the CAPEX that goes into
0: a a credit. Do you need to, to, to make a purchase, do you need to believe that the cost of that pathway or that technology can ultimately be the lowest cost in the market for, you know, equivalent tonnage? Right? Like do you do you need to be able to believe a certain cost curve, or would you say it is still worthwhile to buy something which is always going to come at a premium to everything else that looks pretty similar?
1: I mean the cost curve's critical. It we don't wanna be buying something that's gonna stay flat because that's not pushing innovation and that's not gonna be an offering that's viable in the market of the future, right? We have to be seeing that cost curve, and we should see that cost curve. When you're doing something in a lab or a bench scale, where you're doing 10 tons a year, um, the cost to do that is in you know in more of an engineered solution is way higher than the cost at scale because you're running that plant for 30 years, for example. Like you, your amortization brings that cost down, but what's important to see in that cost curve, and this is what we ask to see as a buyer, because because we're not buying that commodity, because we're like placing bets and we're actually spending way more, way more than we need to today because we're hoping we'll have access to great credits in in the future. We're taking that risk and that ROI. And so that's why we want to understand the cost curve. And we actually ask companies to tell us everything that happens to bring them down. It's not just, oh, here's our cost curve. It's like, okay, what are those step changes and why? And actually, what are the likelihood that that's actually going to hold true? What are the risks that are going to make that not true? And that's where we find a big difference in, in in the companies, because some companies have thought this all through and have answered it and like really can be like, yeah, we don't know. It's 50-50 if this is going to actually pan out for this price reduction that we expect and then others you know oh yes it's fine and then then we know the difference it's like when you're trying to get to know a founder and a leadership team for for a startup when you're going to do an equity investment it's very much a similar thing like you have to have that trust and you have to understand that they know their business and they've thought about this because it's not just we're not just buying a credit it's really not buying a credit that's not the mentality it's the return on our investment, especially in most of our contracts where we do prepayment, it's, it, the ROI is maybe we'll get a credit someday. And so we've got a lot of contracts signed because we don't expect them to deliver credits.
0: The other thing I wonder about, I have thought a little bit about this. There's, I think there should be a different incentive from you, a buyer, versus uh, either a company that could be a supplier or an investor in said company, which which has to do with scalability, right? Because if I'm if I'm Shopify, and I see a solution, I could I could procure credits from. It looks like actually like maybe this is going to be. It's going to check all the boxes. It's going to be durable. It's going to be measurable and verifiable. No side effects. Um, and the cost could be lower than everything else in the market. Let's say, but it scales up to some ceiling and that ceiling is, I don't know, let's just call it like hundred megatons a- and you know, globally. And then there's another solution cost structure fundamentally higher, or it has some other sort of challenges associated with it, but like far more scalable and could do a gigaton of the thing. If I'm Shopify, I think I'm fine procuring from the smaller thing, potentially, right? It has to be some minimum scale because you want it to be able to deliver meaningful benefit to, to you as a buyer and to the industry in general. But you don't, I wouldn't think you need to only bet on things that can scale two gigaton, whereas the company and, and the investors in the company probably want things that have a bigger TAM. So I wonder whether you see that divide at all. It's obviously relevant to things that leverage waste biomass, for example.
1: Yeah, totally. And we definitely, like, definitely see the, the, the difference there. And, you know, deciding to go, like, I don't think it should be an either-or. We've, we've got contracts that fit in both of the two buckets that you just described. Um, but the, the lower scalability, um, that's the reality, and that's going to be the reality for quite a few carbon removal solutions. And like I, I like to think about it as I want carbon removal everywhere. I want every system and every process and every good that we manufacture to be a negative supply chain, right? And if I want that to be the truth of the future, then we need to support these smaller scalable items, because they're actually analogous. You're going to learn something, you're going to learn a model, you're going to use some infrastructure that exists, you're going to do something that's then transferable to another sector. So I don't think it has to be gigaton scale in and of itself, but contributing to the that whole net negative future, because it's something that from a systems perspective, we're going to be able to learn how to apply it elsewhere. So like that, that kind of... Shift in understanding is important. And, you know, some of the things that we thought in 2020 were gigaton scale for a variety of reasons may not be. And so you have to take that that bet. You have to try first to get more information in order to actually determine if that, that scale-up plan is actually feasible. And I, I think that's true for a lot of these.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it isn't. It's it's very interesting. I, I guess the other question that's sort of related to that, like, presumably most of the companies that you are procuring from today are venture backed. Is that true, generally?
1: Yep. Yeah, some are some are venture backed.
0: Yep. Some, but not all, because because I, I guess the question that I have is like, there's there's a bunch of things that I think we should do, like carbon removal solutions that should we should do as a world. But are not necessarily going to be like venture backable companies, maybe because of scalability. Um, This is smaller stuff, even than than sort of waste biomass driven things. And I don't know that there's like much of a. I don't know exactly how you build the company, otherwise. But there are other pathways to scaling companies in venture capital, and I sort of wonder whether we we've really shoved carbon removal, this whole market, into a pure VC context where not everything is necessarily gonna fit that. And I wonder like how you think about ecosystem building outside of that world.
1: Yeah, I, I think we're in the the reality is that carbon removal is in the VC world right now because there's no funding from elsewhere. And I don't see this being a long term financing solution because carbon removal is waste management. Like it it's just cleaning the air, like we clean our water, like we do garbage removal. Like these are not um, things that tend to make money for anybody. So, in the longer term, I think this is going to be more of a, a public requirement than it is going to be something that's got to achieve gigaton scale and make, you know, the ROI that the VC funds are looking for. Because without a requirement to buy the carbon removal, which we don't have, it's all voluntary. Like it's a bit of a. It's not a solid structure for a new industry to be built on. And I think because it's being pushed through the voluntary market and through venture funding, I think we're gonna get proof of concept with this setup. And then in the in the long run, it, my hope is that this becomes more of, you know, yes, the commodities come out, but in order to generate a commodity that you can trade without any friction and there's no, like, real other definition than it's a ton is a ton, in order for that to take place, you have to have regulation. You have to have rules of the game on both sides of the buying and selling equation. And when you have rules on the supply side, then we're talking about the projects. And then if you put the rules in place, are they going to be making money? Maybe, maybe not. And should it not be something that's publicly funded through through governments or not? And I think it's going to be interesting in about 10, 15 years when we have, you know, a good shopping list of carbon removal solutions that have been proven well, who should pay? Because we're going to have to deploy them at a very fast rate compared to what's the projection today.
0: I guess final question for you is on how you think about the evolving world of certification and standards. There are many, many, many different certifications and standards that carbon removal companies can go through to get qualified for whatever. Um, do you rely upon those? Do you trust those? Do you have your own? Just how do you think about that whole universe? So when
1: we started... We began. It was we didn't trust a credit that came out against an established protocol on a existing registry. We reviewed everything and went through it and set ourselves a new internal standard for what we would buy. Um, so no, we we do that rigorous review ourselves and we get support from industry experts depending on what kind of. Um, technology or solution we're talking about. Um, But when it comes to a lot of the credits that are going to be delivered to us in the next year or so, these are the first credits from the first time something's being done at a meaningful scale to generate a credit. Like take ocean alkalinity enhancement or biomass sinking or enhanced rock weathering at scale. Like these things are all going to be coming through in the next, you know, 6, 12, 18 months. And they're also writing the methodology just in advance of doing the deployments. And so the results of the deployment are going to test those methodologies. And so we're going to see updates happening. And I think this is the biggest holdback, I think, to getting more... Um, buyers into the carbon removal market is the infancy of the MRV for these new approaches. Like There's a lot of credit buyers out there who are sitting on the sidelines waiting for these MRV approaches to get tested, proven, impre- increased data sets so that things are statistically significant. And then they're going to be like, oh, okay, well, I, the risk is gone. I can now buy that. So we're five years out, I think, from that happening. And MRV... is the key. And so as an early buyer, we take it very seriously to review everything and get input from scientific and industry experts to make sure that the methodologies are robust and that we're setting that precedent by accepting those first credits. Should we be accepting them? Is this the right amount? And we we don't want to take a misstep because MRV has to be trusted. And I see it as the critical key to unlocking more buyers joining the carbon removal market
0: so before we wrap up um you know given that you're you've been in this market as long as anybody and kind of seen how it's progressed so far like what are your key takeaways what's what what's your overall view of the carbon removal space as it exists today and kind of what you expect to see over the next year
1: one of the things that I kind of expected would bubble up that we never really got to. And it's really, you kind of touched on it when it was, you know, buyers are picking different projects based on different attributes that they, you know, it resonates with them. And I think, you know, one of the things that's popping out quite a bit right now, it's like, we'll say, you know, oh, we got our first credits delivered from Running Tide. That happened back in August, September and, you know, people will be like, oh, well, that's not a good carbon removal solution. You should have done X or you should have done Y. And, you know, there's a lot of everyone's picking their favorite solutions. And, you know, I would argue it's really important to pick ones that are not your favorite, to learn about those two and to push the field forward by having that all of the things portfolio approach. And I think any step towards pushing a technology through the development process is an important step to take. And we're going to see things that don't work out in the next little while. And there's going to be stories about carbon removal projects that failed. And I don't think that these should be held up as a reason not to do carbon removal. They should be held up as progress and viewed as a successful discovery of something that did not work and put us back on on a better path to build the carbon removal ecosystem at large. And I think it's going to be an interesting time coming up. (laughs) So it's going to be fun to watch.
0: All right, Stacey, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate you taking the time.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Stacey Kauk is the head of sustainability at Shopify. This show is a production of Latitude Media. You can head over to latitudemedia.com for links to today's topics. Latitude is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude backs visionaries accelerating climate innovation that will reshape the global economy for the betterment of people and planet. Learn more at PreludeVentures.com. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquan, theme song by Sean Marquan. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst.